MSW Media. The rule of law is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 31 of Clean Up on Aisle 45. It's Wednesday, August 18th. I'm your co-host, Allison Gill. And with me, as always, is Andrew Torres. Woo! Allison, thank you. I am, as always, looking forward to our show for today. But first, we have to thank our new patrons who have supported us over at patreon.com slash aisle45pod for as little as a buck an episode. That's right. So a sincere thank you. To Andrew McManus, we have legal advice if ye have coin. (laughs) We have do not take legal advice from a coin. Uh, The legal eagle is such a handsome beast. Can't wait for his guest appearance to discuss how his FOIA suit went. And Dan Turner is starting the Council of Dans. And and maybe I gave you all the excessively long names this week. Also, a big thank you to Laura L., to John F. Zoidberg, oh, Zoidberg, Zoidberg, <laughs> and to Alexis at the Unconscious Bias Project at that is ubproject.org, which is awesome. Like if you have not taken an unconscious bias test, uh, you definitely should. It's uh, it's pretty revealing. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah, hundred percent. Thank you all so much for supporting the show. Again, Patreon.com/slash/aisle45pod. That's a i s l e four five p o d. And now, on to the A block. Woo! And in order to understand uh, what's been happening in Afghanistan, we first need to provide some context that the mainstream media seems to be leaving out. And uh, this is pertinent to cleanup on L-45, because not only is Biden cleaning up the landmines left by the former administration, but the failures of the last 20 years. So this Uh, is like (laughs) uber cleanup. It, It really is. So let's start with the policy decisions from the Trump administration, right? Something that is not being widely mentioned at all is the agreement that Trump and uh, rapture-ready Christian dominionist Mike Pompeo made with the Taliban in Doha, Qatar. That was a deal that would enrage Republicans if it were made by a Democratic president. The agreement gave the Taliban a series of concrete and measurable gifts, including an allied withdrawal down to 8,600 troops within 135 days, and then the rest out within 14 months. Yeah, and, and we started with like 15,005. Yeah. Uh, and, and then Trump promised them, in addition, the release of 5,000 Taliban prisoners 
uh, which are, you know, Taliban fighters, which included the leader of the Taliban, who will be the new president of Afghanistan. And uh, the U.S. also committed to lifting sanctions on the Taliban, including travel bans, asset freezes and an arms embargo. So Trump basically put all of his trust in the Taliban. And what did we get for it? You yeah. Know? <laughs> it, it, so. I made reference to Mike Pompeo being a Christian dominionist because he is. Um, these are people who want to stoke conflict in the Middle East because they believe that that's how the earth will end in their lifetime. I wish I were making this up. Right. Mm. So that they think there's going to be a global catastrophic war. And Mike Pompeo is the guy going cool. Um, that should terrify you uh, into never voting Republican again. But. Uh, we also need to look at what Trump did with regards to Afghanistan after he lost the election, right? Knowing that the decisions that he made would be inherited by the Biden administration and knowing that, you know, the whole I'm really the president isn't really a thing. So in November of 2020, as Trump fought his flailing battle to void the results of a presidential election, he signed an executive order mandating that U.S. troops leave Afghanistan by January 15th, 2021. And that completely sidelined the Afghan government. Yeah, he never, he they weren't at the table in, in Doha either. And according to the New York Times, as soon as the deal was cut with the Taliban and Trump, the Taliban actually began bribing Afghan fighters and security leaders to lay yeah. down arms, surrender, a plan that culminated in the Taliban taking city after city until they pretty much had a noose around Kabul yeah. and until Biden made the call to withdraw our troops. Yeah. And let's not forget how the outgoing administration delayed giving security briefings to the incoming Biden administration as our good pal GSA Emily refused to acknowledge the Biden victory. Right. And again, it doesn't have to be coordinated when you're a member of the party that thinks government can't work. And then your motto is break shit on the way in and on the way out. Right. It doesn't take much to live up to that. So we have Mitch McConnell slow walking the nomination of all of our intelligence leaders at the same time. Yeah. So so Biden was left with twenty five hundred troops, the Taliban moving toward Kabul at an alarming pace by bribing the Afghan army to surrender. I'm interested into where that money came from. <laughs> uh, it, it was just an untenable situation. But the question now remains how the Biden administration was seemingly taken by surprise with the quickness of the Taliban taking the capital. Uh, even Biden said recently that the Afghan forces were trained and armed and ready to fight and truly genuinely thought the Taliban taking over was inevitable. Uh, but it also appeared that the Biden administration truly and genuinely didn't know the Afghan forces would l just give up, lay down arms and just flee the country. Yeah. Yeah. And so in remarks on Monday by Biden, who um, has spent the last 24 hours in conference with multiple advisors, he told the world, look, he's the commander in chief. The buck stops with him. He laid out the problem that he inherited. He gave reasons why his administration didn't evacuate people sooner. Quote, some Afghans didn't want to leave because they were hopeful their country would fight for them. And also in part because the Afghan government and its officials discouraged us from organizing a mass, ex a mass exodus. The reason being that a mass exodus early would have caused the Afghan government to surrender sooner. Right. Um, he did not address how the administration miscalculated the speed with which the Taliban occupied Kabul, 
uh, but did suggest that regardless of when the exit happened, there would be problems. Right. He went on to say that he will likely be criticized for his decision, but he's willing to take that criticism instead of passing the buck to yet another U.S. president. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, there's there's so much going on here. Uh, I feel like people are making a decision one way or another based on optics or based on what the mainstream media is, is presenting. But, you know, some people are acting like we've been there for two decades to promote women's rights. <laughs> uh, some people are acting like we've been there for two decades to nation build. But that's not why we were there. Biden explicitly said we went in to get the people who attacked us on 9-11. We got them in 2011 and we should have gotten out then. Um, but, the, you know, the humanitarian crisis for women and children is very real. And my heart breaks. Yeah. Seriously. Yeah. Um, no. But I don't think that that can or should continue to be addressed with the use of military force. No, it, it whenever you have destabilized a region and I I think it's safe to say <laughs> that you and I were on the uh, opposite side of all of these wars dating back to, to you know, 2001. Um, whenever you have uh, overwhelming military force and nothing else that's going to cause a power vacuum when you pull out right like that that at at some point you have to make the decision to say okay we're going to ramp down and and get out um knowing that the that the consequences of that is it, it's it's going to destabilize the region because the only thing keeping it up is you know your your troop presence and at at some point the costs for of that exceed the benefits so look yeah go ahead please yeah no i was gonna say this is it is a disaster it is Um, and and we should uh, we shouldn't mince words on that right like and 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 uh, and we're not and uh we're gonna be observing how president biden handles this i'm sorry please Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I mean, you know, he, he he did say, hey, I'm the commander in chief. Uh, I, I wasn't expecting him to give us the background on the Trump Doha agreement in the comments and mm. in, in his comments to the to the world. I should say the nation, but the world as he did. Um, and I was hoping he would address. Yeah, this there was a failure somewhere. And first we're going to fix it and then we'll figure out where the failure is. But he, he didn't really he kind of acknowledged the failure. Uh, he's, he did acknowledge that this went way quicker than we thought, but he didn't say why. Neither did anyone at the State Department or Pentagon when they did their press conferences following his comments. But I mean, you know, he did repeat over and over again. He's not going to send American men and women to die, break families, uh, you know, create horrible injuries and and illnesses uh, that, you know, you know, that will result in the amount of veteran suicides we have every day. He's not going to continue to do that. So I thought it was really I thought it was good that he is the first president in the last two decades to acknowledge uh, that that this kind of nation building, which is not why we were there, is uh, apparently a, a giant waste of money. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the, the reality is when you have a mismatch between the Afghan government and the Afghan population, right, it, 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 it puts you in a position where the alternatives are keep the war going while uh losing support of the folks who were there on the ground i mean that you know we we have seen what that looks like in terms of both an an ostensibly organized and unorganized withdrawal um there there're not a lot of good options here and uh and again that does not excuse the administration it does not mean that 
We will not hold them accountable for their decisions. It does mean I, I'm I'm shocked, and I guess I shouldn't be, but I, but I'm shocked at the media coverage uh, that is sort of completely devoid of context. And and I think that that is you know there's always more play in you know taking the popular guy down a peg rather than you know asking for nuance. So I, it yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll yeah, leave well, it and, and now you know now that now that the former guy is out of the White House, they're desperate for clicks and yep. uh, a sensational news. This is a sensational situation. Don't again, don't get me wrong, but uh, a lot of the Afghans I saw today um, didn't seem to be saying what the fuck is Biden doing. They seem to be saying where did our president go? <clears throat> Why did he lay down arms? Why did Ghani leave? Why did they abandon us? Why did our government abandon us? Um, you know, and there we are moving, um, you know, in an expedited fashion to to get out our allies, NGOs, SIVs, as many people as we can, move them to safety. Um, and we've got about six thousand or seven thousand incoming to help with that, to help with that um, that effort. But Biden has said once that's done, we're we're gone, and and, and you and, know we and can't again. fight a civil war for a country yep. whose government refuses to do it. You said it better than I could, so I will just say I agree. All right. Well, we have a, a lot more to get to. There's a lot more cleanup going on behind the scenes. I know that this <laughs> Afghan story is really out front right now, but there are other things we need to talk about, and we're going to do that right after we come back from this break. Stay with us. Hey, everybody. It's Allison Gill for Cleanup on Aisle 45. I hope everyone's been having a great summer. Things you want to do, evening swims, popsicles, dog belly rubs, things you don't want to do overpay for home and auto insurance. <laughs> Policy Genius can help look for similar coverage to what you have now, but at a lower price. Policy Genius makes it easy to compare home and auto insurance in one place. It's how I got new policies when I wanted to leave USAA because they kept advertising on Fox News. I use Policy Genius. It's super simple. You compare home and auto insurance all in the same spot, and they've saved customers an average of $1,250 a year over what they were paying for home and auto insurance before. Their team will handle the paperwork to set up your new policy or switch over your current one. Getting started is easy. First, you head to policygenius.com, answer a few quick questions about yourself and your property, and then Policy Genius takes it from there. They do all the heavy lifting. They compare rates from America's top insurers, from Progressive to Allstate, and they find you the lowest quotes. The Policy Genius team can look for ways to save you more, including building your home and auto and policies and bundling them together. And if they find a better rate than what you're paying now, they'll switch you over for free. Their top-notch service has earned Policy Genius thousands of five-star reviews across Trustpilot and Google. So head to policygenius.com to get started now. Policy Genius. When it comes to insurance, it's nice to get it right. All right. Welcome back to Clean Up on Aisle 45. So uh, we talked about the big foreign policy news. Uh, the big domestic news from last week, uh, direct follow-up on our last episode, episode 30, was the Senate's passage of Senate Concurrent Resolution 14. That passed 50 to 49 along party lines. So, yes, that's all 50 Democrats, including Kirsten Sinema, including Joe Manchin in favor and all of the Republicans against. Um, I actually thought when I saw that there was one non-voting Republican that it had to be Marco mm. Rubio. Uh, but no, he actually showed up for this one. Uh, it was South Dakota Senator Mike Rounds who stayed home this time. Wouldn't have mattered. Right. But, uh, you know, so uh, so he wasn't there. Um on party lines, and uh, and that is uh, concurrent resolution fourteen. Yes. So the important thing to know about this are well, there's a few things, and they are as follows. First, 
This authorizes and invokes the budget reconciliation process that completely cuts Republicans out of the business. You know, sit down. And at the end of the day, Biden will only need 50 votes to pass the bill that gets reconciled with what comes out of the House. Secondly, the heavy lifting has been done already in that bill. Um, It sets forth the various caps from each of the committees who will draft their portions of the final budget bill. This is sort of a little look into the process here. So that maximum is $4.7 trillion. And if you're thinking, uh, A.G., how come I hear everyone talking about how it's a $3.5 trillion budget? Well, it's actually $3.5 trillion in new spending. And we think about that, Andrew, because the $1.2 trillion bipartisan budget deal is actually only a $597 billion <laughs> budget deal. Right. right. <laughs> so we have to think of it that way. And, you know, the budgetary consequences of that new spending are reduced by offsets. Sometimes spending in one year brings in more revenue in future years mm-hmm. and has to fit into the overall framework that starts at $4.7 billion and grows by roughly 3.5% per year. Yeah, that's exactly right. So you might see this bill described in the press as a framework, and that's a fair way to describe it, right? It, it, it says to each committee, right, to each Senate and House committee, you can spend up to X dollars in your proposed budget Now go and draft it and we'll stick it into an omnibus bill. We'll reconcile it. It'll be part of the 2022 budget. And so the important part is that the maximums have already been voted for. And now it's up to each committee in the House and the Senate to draft the language that will appear in that final budget. And yes, I know you're going to see like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. They've already started kvetching about the cost. Um, But at the end of the day, right, I don't think they're going to vote no on an up or down vote on a Democratic budget. And it's not like it is not like there is an omnibus principle that you can say, oh, this is, you know, X dollars in new spending. Come back and give me something else. Right. You would have to line item and sort of nitpick through everything. So I, I think the hard work got done already. That's my view. Yes, and we do hear these things in the House about moderates saying they're not going to sign the reconciliation until they get the bipartisan one, and progressives saying they're not going to sign the the, the uh, bipartisan one until they get the it's they're they'll sign it. Um, <laughs> it might be a little bit less than originally planned, but that being said, this is a fundamentally progressive framework, both in terms of the amount of spending and in terms of revenue and the. The things that are in it, right? Mm. Let's start with the spending side, which fills in many of the gaps that were cut from the bipartisan infrastructure bill, so-called soft infrastructure uh, that, you know, the stuff that the Republicans wanted to leave out, they would never vote for, like $726 billion for universal pre-K for three and four-year-olds. $726, $726 billion. Yep. That's more than the bipartisan bill has in new spending, <laughs> right. all told. Uh, and it also child care and working families, tuition-free community college funding for historically black colleges and universities, and expansion of the Pell Grant for higher education. That's what that 726 covers. $107 billion to address, quote, lawful permanent status for qualified immigrants. Awesome. $135 billion for fighting forest fires. Uh, do, you, do you think they got us some rakes for us in California? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Reducing carbon emissions, that this 135 chunk goes for as well, and addressing drought concerns. $198 billion for clean energy and $332 billion for public housing and community land trusts. That's just massive amounts of funding. Yeah, it really is. So if you're a curmudgeon 
Or if you need to score points with moderates, you can point out that defense spending continues to be just egregiously large, right? Like the cap in this bill is $765 billion. That is up from the $733 billion in the 2021 bill. And when adjusted for inflation, it's higher than at the height of the Reagan administration, you know, the Cold War. So look, like there's still plenty to gripe about in terms of long-term change, but I think it's equally important to note that like this is not only a move in the right direction, but alongside the spending are the descriptions, the allocations of where the money is going to come from. The infrastructure bill was mostly revenue neutral, right? It included no new taxes. This bill is going to raise taxes on individuals, on businesses that need their taxes raised. And I'm glad that our party is is ready to take the fight to the people on that, right? That we've given up that like, all taxes equal bad. <laughs> yeah, and, so, and not and not even in some cases here, not just not even raised, just bring it up to where the rest of yeah. us are. <laughs> and independent analysts agree that the tax measures proposed in the framework really do live up to Biden's promise not to raise taxes on families making less than 400,000 per year. Instead, it raises money by undoing the idiotic giveaways of the last administration what I was referring to, giveaways that We saw did nothing for economic growth, but provide windfalls for the ultra wealthy, right? Oh, they're going to take that money and hire new workers and spend it on stuff because Reaganomics totally works. Uh, No, they hoarded it, (laughs) right? They put it in dividend. So, for example, the corporate tax rate was 35 percent from 1994 to 2017 until Trump lowered it from 35 percent to 21 percent in 2017. Biden's proposal is to increase it to just 28 percent. Meet 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 you in the middle, Republicans, uh, alongside a new accounting measure that would impose a minimum tax of 15 percent on book income. <laughs> it would also revert the top tax bracket from 37 percent to its pre-Trump level of 39.6, a 2.6 percent increase, a move that would affect less than um, less than the top one yeah. percent of taxpayers, less than. And finally, the framework removes some preferential treatment for capital gains instead of treating gains on assets. Uh, held for more than one year as ordinary income tax, right? right. <laughs> uh, or excuse me, as ordinary income, for, right? Right. For to be taxed, and I mean, these are all, in my view, pretty. Mm, I mean, they could be a lot more. Yeah, it, it's <laughs> no, no, no that, that that's right. Like it is. I I think you were going for modest, right? But but yeah. but modest in the right direction. So uh, if. If you want to know where I think the battleground will be over the next couple of weeks, that will be the Senate considering whether to incorporate Liz Warren's Real Corporate Profits Tax Act, um, which would require companies to pay seven cents, right? That's seven percent on every dollar of book income, right? That and so that is the reason we keep saying book income, listeners, is that right now there's this ridiculous dual system whereby a company, a corporation can report one line of income on its taxes and a different line of income on its 10Ks, 10Qs, public disclosures to shareholders, right? And so guess what happens, right? Mm -hmm. Supremely profitable companies are incentivized to report, oh, no, we're dead broke to the IRS. Uh, But if you said, oh, no, we're dead broke to your shareholders, your stock price drops. So they tell the shareholders, yeah, we're making a shit ton of money. And uh, at some point, right, Liz Warren's kind of stood up and was like, look, just pick one, right? 
are you going to tell your shareholders you're broke and risk the 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 drop in your sales price? Okay, fine. If the evidence supports that, great. But no more pleading poverty to the IRS while telling your shareholders how rich you are. Anyway, so if you have booked income over a hundred million dollars in your in your disclosures to your shareholder profits, right? That would impose a seven percent tax on income above that hundred million dollars. Um, Warren estimates that that would raise $700 billion over 10 years from roughly the 1,300 largest companies in America. The ones who can afford it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And her plan is being rolled out with the support of independent Senator Angus King, Mm -hmm. probably the third most moderate Democrat in the Senate. King is already testing out his defense, saying in a New York Times interview, it's not socialism and it's attempt to have a fair tax at a pretty low level for companies that would otherwise pay zero. Uh, it, it, this is a pretty clear reference to Amazon's zero taxes in 2018. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, he's out on his space cock and it's like, hey, how about you fork over 7%? Over 100 million. First 100 million you get to keep, bro. <laughs> yeah, that's on you. <laughs> Now, Senate Finance Committee Chairman Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon uh, summarized that the Democrats' revenue-raising plans, quote, will fall into four categories, multinational corporations, the wealthiest individuals, enforcement against wealthy tax cheats, and savings from other programs. Yeah. Um, so I, that's all correct. And, and as we're thinking about this, I want to draw your attention to a fantastic piece by Dylan Matthews in Vox that just came out this week, which is titled The Big Drop in American Poverty During the Pandemic Explained, right? (laughs) And the thesis is poverty is a policy choice. I think this is one of the most important things you can read right now as we try and figure out what the Democratic Party stands for, right? COVID highlighted massive changes to our economy. We realized, for example, many jobs didn't need to be done in an office, things that you never would have thought could be done from home. Uh, 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 large segments of that economy are never going back into in, into an office, right? Lots of people are are just going to stay home instead of going into physical space, regardless of, of what happens with the Delta variant or the pandemic. And that dovetails with, you know, what I like to call the robot overlords part of our impending economy, right? Like the fact that we, we have to face the reality that in the not so distant future, um, automation can do many of the jobs that people do right now. And I'm telling you that includes lawyering, right? Does not include podcasting. That's why I branched out, right? Um, <laughs> You're divesting. Your yeah, exactly. I like I, any sensible political party that cares about our medium term future needs to be thinking about big ideas, given that our economy has already changed. Yeah, and will continue to change just to, you know, bury your head in the sand and say, it's going to be this many workers forever, Uh, you know, jobs that are needed for for all time. We're never going to take another step toward, you know, automation is uh, a disingenuous position. So in the United States, that means we have part of one party (laughs) that's asking those kinds of questions. Should we have universal basic income? UBI, right? Should we have federal job guarantees at the FJG? Those are big programs. But if we, you know, if we think about progressive economics from the standpoint of larger transfers of wealth from the top to the bottom, we actually got a pretty good look at what that might look like in terms of 
three stimulus bills that passed in March 2020, December 2020, and then again in March 2021, with each one getting more progressive and each one, uh, you know, purporting to raise more money and also spend more money. That's what it looks like. And I think that that is the core of the, of the Biden agenda to reshape the way we do business. I, I think that's right. So, look, I, I don't want to spoil the findings of the piece. Um, it turns out giving money to people who need it is actually a super fantastic way to reduce the poverty rate in ways that even I found pretty stunning. Right. Like so. By the end of 2021, the poverty rate is set to fall to eight and a half percent. That's the lowest it's ever been. Since we have tracked since numbers, right? <laughs> and that's during a pandemic. The black poverty rate is cut almost in half from 20.4% to 12.1%. Child poverty cut more than in half from 137 to 5.9%. And that's on the backs of giving people money. So give people money. They pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Turns out it works. Yeah, there's just so many ways, uh, and even in local and municipal governments, that we can do this. We had a big thing here in San Diego. Our government, our governor was, or our mayor was spending, you know, millions of dollars to put spikes on benches and and armrests on benches Ugh. to make it uncomfortable for homeless people to sleep on when she could have just made those people houses. <laughs> like, <laughs> absolutely, mind. But well, you can't give away free houses, but spikes on benches, yay! Spikes on benches. It, it absolutely makes no sense. We have to rethink the, the way that we do things and what these these infrastructure bills and these budget reconciliation bills are doing on a massive scale is rethinking it in, uh, you know, uh, overall systems, big thinking, big picture. Yep. Couldn't agree more. Yep. All right. Well, that's uh, all good news. And hopefully we'll see those come uh, to fruition and signed in the fall. Uh, and then we can start um, seeing the benefits of them out in public. Uh, leading up to 2022, uh, which I think is going to be, uh, you know what, Andrew, every single election from now on is going to be the most important election of our life. It really looked like, and 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 I'm sorry we have to to sound the alarm like that, but like this is what happens when you give up and elect a, a, a criminally insane game show host uh, who has ambitions to destroy democracy, right? Like, it, it, it's just like the five-year-old in your house of cards on the table. Like, super easy to destroy stuff, super hard to build it back up. That's why we do the show. So, yeah, I agree. It sucks. We ought to be able to undo Trump's damage in, in four years, but, but, but it's going to take a lot longer than that. Yeah, and we can set ourselves up for um, a much more solid future uh, with the passage of these bills. I think these are humongous, humongous bills. Absolutely. We have your favorite segment coming up next, but we have to take a quick break. So stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody, it's AG. This is Clean Up on Aisle 45, and this portion of the podcast is brought to you by Feels CBD. CBD isn't about what you feel. It's about what you don't feel, like stress and anxiety and pain. Uh, If you haven't tried CBD, I highly recommend it. It's safe, organic, and it's been really helpful for me with pain relief, nervousness, and insomnia. Feels is a better way to feel better. Feels is a premium CBD that will help keep your head clear and feel your best. It's hassle-free and delivered directly to your door. CBD naturally helps reduce stress, anxiety, pain, and sleeplessness. There's no hangover or addiction. Feels has helped me feel more calm, less sore after workouts. It's helped elevate my mood, helps me not have that, you know, that, that 
uh, just quick reaction to things. I'm real chill about stuff, more relaxed. I just sleep better too. Just place a few drops of feels under your tongue and you feel the difference within minutes. The thing to remember about CBD is finding your right dose, and that's very important. Everyone's dose is different. In fact, Feels offers a free CBD hotline to help guide your personal experience so that you'll find the perfect dose. The Feels customer service team is awesome, and they're dedicated to making sure you get the best use of your CBD. Joining the Feels monthly membership makes your self-care easy. You'll save money on every order, and you can pause or cancel anytime. Super simple. Start feeling better with Feels. Become a member today by going to feels.com slash cleanup and you'll get 50% off your first order with free shipping. That's feels, F-E-A-L-S dot com slash cleanup to become a member and get 50% automatically taken off your first order with free shipping. Become a member today by going to feels.com slash cleanup and you'll get 50% off your first order. Feels.com slash cleanup. You'll be glad you did. Everybody, welcome back. It's time for your favorite segment and mine, comings and goings. First up, we welcome another Republican as senior staff to the bipartisan 1-6 commission. We talked about him. Uh, Joe Marr, right? Joe Marr joins the staff on a detail from the Department of Homeland Security, where he has served as a principal deputy general counsel since 2011. Mr. Marr joined the department shortly after it was created during the Bush administration, GW. Mr. Marr also served in the office of the solicitor and at the department, oh, excuse me, at the office of the solicitor at the Department of Labor. I thought those were two different jobs. No, it's just such a long title. It's one job. <laughs> he did that from 2002 to 2003 as an attorney at uh, Sidley Austin and as a law clerk for the Honorable E. Grady Jolly, who was appointed to the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit by Reagan. So again, not a Democrat. No, no. So also welcome aboard to the 1-6 Commission, Timothy J. Heafy who will serve as chief investigative counsel. Heafy is taking a leave of absence from his current position, which is university counsel at the University of Virginia. Uh, and if you think about that, it's going to make sense in a minute. He's former U.S. attorney for the Western District of Virginia, right? So prosecutor who was appointed by Obama in 2009, served through to 2014. Uh, then he went into private practice. He was at the law firm of Hunt and Andrews Kurth. And while there, he conducted a comprehensive independent review of the August 2017 mass demonstration events that's how it's being described in charlottesville virginia for the city of charlottesville right so yeah he was the guy who was hired by the city of charlottesville to investigate the unite the right rally and uh i i love the fact that he's going to be on the one six commission i am also very glad about this because now we are upon the anniversary the four-year anniversary of that rally the unite the right rally and so um yeah definitely welcome aboard uh to mr heafy and I just like his name, Heafy. <laughs> Finally, we'd like to give a continued hello to acting U.S. Solicitor General Elizabeth Prelegar. Am I saying that right, Andrew? I think so. Prelegar? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I covered her extensively during the Mueller investigation. Uh, that's when I first heard of her. <laughs> <laughs> Last week, President Biden announced he was nominating Prelegar to take over the role permanently. She's been acting. If confirmed, she'd become only the second woman ever to hold that position. Yeah. And as we've mentioned before... um, the Solicitor General is the lawyer who argues on behalf of the government in federal court in litigation, right, who decides when to file amicus briefs. It is often a very high profile position, right? So past Solicitors General include Elena Kagan, Ted Olson, Walter Dellinger, Seth Waxman, uh, but, you know, also 
Noel Francisco, Ken Starr, and Robert Bork. So look, like it hasn't always been great, okay? <laughs> Elena Kagan, I've heard of her. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah Prelegar is no Ken Starr, though uh, she's, she's a veteran appellate attorney who has been in the acting role, as I said, since January 20th. Happy birthday to me. Uh, and previously served as assistant to the Solicitor General from 2014 to 2019. You likely remember her name, as I said, from her service as assistant special counsel to Bob Mueller during the investigation into Russian election meddling from 2017 to 2019. Prelegar was part of the team that put together the case against former Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort. <laughs> a successful case. Yeah. I know he's not in prison right now, but it's not because of they, they didn't do their work. Um, word is word has it that she uh, drafted uh, principal sections of the Mueller report, which is interesting. I wonder if it's any of the obstruction of justice. Uh, stuff, but no, probably yeah. Penafort stuff. Yep. So look, uh, Prelgar graduated with a JD from the only law school that matters. Uh, she clerked for Merrick Garland when he was uh, on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. That That's usually a springboard for clerking for the Supreme Court, uh, which she did twice, once for Ruth Bader Ginsburg, once for Elena Kagan. She then went into private practice and at the same time taught a class in Supreme Court and appellate advocacy at Harvard. Um and so if it sounds like I'm a little bit jealous, I have not even told you yet that she is just 40 years old. <laughs> Mother effer. Yeah, I Are know. you it, effing it, I, I was feeling good about myself and my accomplishments today, and then I had to write the Prelegar segment. But uh, no, it's good. It's good. I, I'm glad this is... I, we're, we're bringing out our best and brightest, and it's not <laughs> me, and that makes me sad. <laughs> I know. She's 40. <laughs> Dude. All right. Well, if you're thinking that makes her a legitimate potential Supreme Court nominee, you'd be correct. Yeah. Solicitors general who have gone on to be nominated Supreme Court include Elena Kagan, Bork, and Thurgood Marshall. Ronald Reagan Solicitor General Charles Freed went on to serve on the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court, their state Supreme Court. So this is yet another high-profile job being done by a high-profile, highly qualified woman, and I couldn't be happier about it. I'm very excited. Uh... There are some cases I wish she wouldn't be arguing. Mm. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, but it is her job to argue those cases on behalf of the government, and uh, she will do a stellar job. Yeah, and this is one more reason. I mean, we say this every week, but it's one more reason. If you truly care about social justice, if you truly care about social equality, that you can... Uh, disagree with decision. You have to be happy with the directionality of the Biden administration. Right. Um, but uh, to throw cold water on that, because uh, that's my job, uh, I did turn back to the Washington Post's Biden appointee tracker. Right. Which we talked about about uh, 15 episodes ago. I need to tell you, there are 237 high profile positions that require Senate confirmation for which there is still no Biden a nominee. Right. So in terms of confirmation, uh, it was close a couple months ago, uh, but by August of their first terms, Obama had confirmed 293 appointees, Bush 283, uh, and Trump 116. Biden is just narrowly leading the laziest, most incompetent administration in history with 127 confirmations, right? So look, hopefully the recess gives the administration some time to identify folks like uh, the chief financial officer for the State Department, uh, general's counsel for the Air Force and the Army, the undersecretary of the Navy, assistant attorney general for the civil division at the Department of Justice, um, and many other. These are frontline positions, and we've got nobody yet. 
Well, I think I'm going to try to give uh, Anthony Blinken maybe a loan for $16 million and see oh. if I can be undersecretary of the Navy. Uh, couldn't hurt. <laughs> uh, the old uh, days. Ah, cock. <laughs> <laughs> ah, good old cock. It's a cock history. Um, yeah, but, you know, we also have to keep in mind that uh, the Senate, Mitch McConnell was filibustering, uh, it, getting the power agreement and all this McConnell, bullshit, get so. him McConnell. We got that. We got, got it. Got him. Yeah, all right. And it, but it is hard work um, to do without a full team. We did get a big batch of confirmations last week, though. Uh, so we also wish a warm cleanup on our 45 welcome to Damon Smith, who was confirmed by the Senate as general counsel, Department of Housing and Urban Development. Woo! Uh, I don't think he's going to buy any $30,000 dining room tables, but we'll see. Uh, to Taryn Williams, Assistant Secretary for Disability Employment Policy, uh, Department of Labor. Jennifer Moffitt, Undersecretary for Marketing and Regulatory Programs, Department of Agriculture. Alejandra Castillo, Assistant Secretary for Economic Development, Department of Commerce. Andrew Light, Assistant Secretary for International Affairs, Department of Energy. Gil Cisneros, Undersecretary for Personnel and Readiness, Department of Defense. And former Senator Ken Salazar, as we all know, of Colorado, who was confirmed as the ambassador to Mexico. Woo! Welcome aboard, everyone. And finally, the Presidential HIV Council welcomes the first trans black woman to its ranks. Her name is Tori Cooper. She began her work 20 years ago working on a CDC program called Sister to Sister, adapting the HIV risk reduction program to meet the unique needs of trans women. God, I love that. I know. And she's now the director of community engagement for the Human Rights Campaign Transgender Justice Initiative. And Biden has appointed her now to serve on the uh, Presidential Advisory Council on HIV AIDS, bringing her uh, 30 years of experience over and, of course, her voice as a black transgender woman. Yeah. So file that one uh, three years from now when, uh, you know, your friend reading the Jacobin mag tells you that there's no difference between the two parties. Um, This this absolute Tory Cooper would not have been would have been arrested in a uh, Trump administration. Uh, and here she's on the presidential advisory council. So welcome aboard. But but I got to tell you, get to work. Yeah, 100 uh, percent. This was a good comings and goings today. Andrew. Yeah. lots of folks, lots of folks. Yeah. <laughs> and um, still a lot more to go. I, the, yeah. You know, look, I think we've I think we're trying to strike the right balance here. Right. Like it is. These are good qualified diverse people in the right sense of the word right like you 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 want diversity to avoid uh groupthink right and to say to bring into perspectives right on hiv how does this uniquely affect trans women you know how, how does this uniquely affect the intersectionality of trans women of color right and and this is what you want a smart administration to do uh, they're doing it. I, I wish they'd do it a little faster. Yeah, and it, and it, this is a good, I think, example for private businesses. It bucks the argument that there aren't enough of, you know, X particular group uh, that 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 are qualified. Uh, and and I, this just just you know spits in the face of that notion. And I think it's a, a really important lesson for for private businesses to take away as well. Absolutely. All right. Well, this has been uh, a good, a great show. It's been a good show. It's been a great show, Andrew. Well, it's uh, always a great show for today. me because I get to hang out with you. So, <laughs> hey, right back at you. Oh. And I just want to thank um, our Beans patron uh, named Moss, who, when I was in L.A. this weekend, hooked me up with a, a nine-year-old 
bottle of single Ooh, malt. Ooh, Mossberg. I like it. Yeah. 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 And I, I've never, I haven't tried it yet, but I have it here uh, and I'm, I'm excited. And, um, and thanks to all our I'm 30% scotch shows. by volume. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> scotch, uh, scotch is in the nationality or it's scotch. Oh, yeah. No, no, not in the nationality. Torres, really? Yeah. Not a lot of, <laughs> not a, not, not a lot of, uh, Scottish Torres is no, it's a. I yeah. mean, I mean, blood alcohol level. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's all those, it's all those bowls of, of, of liquor and fish heads I keep for you in my lawyer dungeon. Yep. All right. Well, thanks so much for taking the time today. And again, thanks to all our patrons for supporting the show. Uh, we'll have some news for you regarding an upcoming visit in D.C. soon. So stay tuned for that. Uh, I don't have anything else unless you do. Nope. All right. I've been Allison Gill. I'm Andrew Torres. And this is Clean Up on Aisle 45. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is written, researched, and produced by Allison Gill and Andrew Torres with editing by Molly Hockey. Our art and logo designer by Joel Reeder and Moxie Design Studios, and our music is composed and performed by Adam Orr. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. 